Well now, with regard to the subject this evening, and the reference made by our brother to the fact that we do not belong to a denomination, we belong to Christ. We belong to Christ as members of his body. And members of his body on absolutely equal terms. There's no possibility of translating Ephesians 3.6 into legitimate English because you can't have a joint body because you could very well say there's no such thing. It's a body in which every member is united one to another because they're all united one to another in the Lord. Now I try to practice what I preach although I'm very, very conscious uh, that those who know me most would say well he makes a good effort but you know, that's all right. But I do this. I have never collaborated with the speaker in the afternoon. I've never said to him, what are you going to talk about? So that we don't tread on one another's toes. Because by so doing, I should interfere with the leading of the Spirit of God. He is a member of the body, getting his message from the Lord. I'm a member of the body. So you're going to have it all over again this evening, friends. Because the Lord has decided so. It isn't every speaker who says, Beloved friends, I'm so glad he took a leaf out of my book. But because we believe the truth, and because we believe we belong to the Lord, instead of having two lines of teaching that would be distracting us, we're going to have another point of view of the same line of teaching for this afternoon. Now, our brother has mentioned one or two of the booklets that are in progress. And one of them, I felt I must write after I'd been away from my holiday. I went to a Christian guest house, and I've generally given a wide berth because you get such a conglomeration of what's supposed to be called Christianity uh, that it's one long fight for the truth or sitting mum. But I was very glad to come across a little group of people that really believed the Lord and loved his word. But, they had a little meeting every evening. And when I was there the first time, they solidly went through every chapter of Matthew. And when they went there this time, they were going solidly through every chapter of Mark's Gospel. Well, you say, what's the harm of that? Isn't that true? Oh, yes. And when the passage for to be read out of Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, the second half came, he said to me, would you take that? And that second half of Mark's Gospel was the Syrophoenician woman who came to our Lord and she said, son of David, and she ought not to have done because she was an outsider. And he answered her not a word. And he said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now some people read that and never see it. They maintain for all their worth that the early chapters of the Gospel according to Matthew are truth for them. They don't believe what the Lord said. I am not sent. And earlier he said to his disciples, go not into the way of the Gentiles. And they say we're all going. And that's supposed to be obedience. So when I had that reading, I asked the friends this question. I said, you are living this side of the cross of Christ. That chapter I've read is that side of the cross of Christ. The ones who heard that message didn't know that Christ was to die. Peter himself who preached the gospel of the kingdom and raised the dead and cleansed the lepers to show he preached it properly, didn't know that Christ was to die. For when Christ made the statement for the first time in the gospel according to Matthew, he said, oh, no, let it not be. Now look, friends, all practice arises out of your calling. We can only walk worthy of our calling. Well, if a person is going to make the Sermon on the Mount, their guide for their daily walk, and you have to admit that not a single person to whom that was addressed in the Sermon on the Mount ever heard of Christ dying or being crucified. There isn't a single reference to redemption or atonement or forgiveness. All there is in the Lord's Prayer, but it's carefully explained that if you don't forgive, you'll have your forgiveness rescinded. So it's not the justification we have in the epistles, it's the pardon of a king. Don't you see, there are many of God's children 
who are living on crumbs that fall from Israel's table when they might be enjoying all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. The glorious teaching of Paul's last ministry contains the truth that was never on Israel's table. For if we believe what God said, when he became the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles, he said, I receive by revelation the mystery which in other ages was not known unto the sons of men. It was hid in God and hidden away from the generations. Now people call you all manner of names because you simply believe what God says. Well, who cares for that? As long as we're on the side of God. Well now you say, what's all this leading up to? Well, I listened with joy this afternoon to our younger friend who stood here and emphasised the fact that there are some things better than others in the New Testament. You know them. He went over them. Well, you're going to have it all over again, friend, from another angle. And that's very often the way the Spirit teaches. And the Apostle says, for me to say the same things, to me is not grievous, and to you it is safe. I'm going to read now a poem that was sent to me by our dear brother, Andrew Morton, who is not with us this evening, but has been a stalwart helper for 50 years. He copied it out of the CSSM magazine, but altered it a wee bit to suit our present circumstances. So will you permit me to read it? It is in the uh, volume 23, I think that was in the year 33, it was printed. This is the poem. Some of us stay at the cross. Some of us wait at the tomb. Quickened, raised, Heated together with Christ, yet lingering still in its gloom. Some of us bide at the Passover feast with ascension all unknown. The triumphs of grace in the heavenly place that our Lord has made his own. Our own. If the Christ who died had stopped at the cross, his work had been incomplete. If the Christ who was buried had stayed in the tomb, he had only known defeat, that the way of the cross never stops at the cross, and the way of the tomb leads on to victorious grace in the heavenly place where the risen Lord has gone. So you see, some are living on crumbs that fall from Israel's table, and the bulk of their reading is addressed to those who never knew that Christ was to die. And then others, all they rejoice in the fact that they preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's where they stop. And you know as well as I do, that the same apostle who said, I determined to know nothing about you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified, in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, said in the 15th chapter of the same epistle, if Christ be not raised from the dead, your faith is vain and you're yet in your sins, even though... He died on the cross. So you see, we're not belittling. We're only saying, you're belittling the work of Christ if you stay there. But he hasn't stayed there. We speak, don't we, of the finished work of Christ. What do we mean by that? Well, most of us, and rightly, remember that our Saviour said on the cross, it is finished. And incipiently, everything was finished. But he went on. But you can go back to Genesis chapter 2 and you can read and so God finished his work. You see, it depends upon what work was finished. I believe if we only knew all that's involved in the six days creation and all their typology from the conflict of darkness and light at the beginning unto the coming into existence of the first Adam in the likeness of the second Adam we should see the whole purpose of the ages in that one chapter. And we should say, yes, God meant what he said. He finished the work and the Sabbath followed. But then it has to be unfolded. And we come to the cross. And what was finished there was the sin question. Forever. Settled forever. The sin question. It is finished. But supposing there'd been no resurrection. None of us, not one of us, would ever see life eternal, would we? 
because he who was raised from the dead was raised the first fruits of them that sleep. So there's a finished work on the cross and there's a finished work three days afterwards when he became the first fruits of them that sleep. But then he went further. He didn't stay on this earth. And this little poem, you see our brother, he gently altered it. I think they said, some of us hide at the Passover feast with Pentecost all unknown. But he said, with ascension all unknown. Oh, you say, what's the ascension got to do with it? Well, now I've given you the answer, haven't I? But supposing I'd have just said to you without preparation, what was the first command that the risen Christ ever sent to his disciples? Oh, one would have said, go ye to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that is baptized and believes and works miracles and what not be saved. Mark 16. Or go into all the world and preach the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Teach those to observe all things I've commanded. But the first message he ever sent after his race from the dead was to go to my brethren and say, I ascend. That must have been important then. So let's go on then, shall we, where we left off this afternoon. So I'm so glad that we've had it all over again. We're going to have it all over again, perhaps from another angle. And as our brother was obliged to go to the epistle to the Hebrews to get a start, so am I. I'm sure he won't mind me going to the epistle to the Hebrews. No, all right. Uh, if he did, of course, it wouldn't make any difference, you know that. But still, it's nice to be polite, isn't it? So here we are with the epistle to the Hebrews and the point that we're going to make is not why Hebrews was written and its purpose but just to see one feature in it. Chapter 1 I think we can uh, afford time to read the first two or three verses. Chapter 1 God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. I stop there for a moment and say, take a leaf out of Paul's book, will you? If you can find something upon which your listener can agree, use it. Now, he was writing to the Hebrews, and the one thing they gloried in was that to them had been entrusted the Scriptures. To them God spoke through the prophets. And all the prophets were Hebrews. So you see, instead of putting their backs up, he said, I'm agreeing with you. In time past, it was unto the fathers. And you haven't got any fathers in the scriptural sense. Oh, I know some people claim the whole lot. But you haven't got any fathers in the scriptural sense. You can't say your fathers were baptized into Moses. <laughs> Not so. Oh, there may be one in this meeting who could say, yes, that's true, but blessed be God, he's a believer in Christ now, so it doesn't matter. Now he's going to, going to take the next step. He hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. That's God saying, you see. And if you look at chapter 2, he says, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels is back on the same subject, once the word spoken through prophets, now the word spoken by angels. And every transgression and disobedience receives a just recompense or reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? Here he says, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Don't you see he's on the same thought? If it was a wonderful gift of God, and a tremendous responsibility to be the custodians of the Old Testament. What about the custodians of the highest revelation the Bible contains, given to the Apostle Paul by the ascended Christ, when Israel went out into their blindness? Is it nothing to you or to me? So he says here, he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Then he gives the glories of that Son, and goes on to say, we'll read it, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, I want you to notice this bit, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down. Do you see? He's leaped 
from the cross to the right hand of God. One step. It doesn't need to say he denied that he was three days and three nights in the tomb. It doesn't say deny that he was 40 days on the earth afterwards. But now he's got to the point that all that is basic to this. And if I miss this out, you miss the lot. But if he hadn't ascended, and if he hadn't sat down, the work would still be unfinished. The seal would never be set upon his work. But what did he do when he ascended? Henceforth expecting till his pose they made his footstool. The next thing is the coming in judgment. The settling the great controversy between Satan and Christ, darkness and light, good and evil, once and forever. So you see, you've got to say finish, 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 finish the different phases of the work. Not the only one. So we have this statement of the Apostle. He's so keen on the emphasis upon the ascension at the right hand of God that he doesn't mind even being mistaken if needs be because you couldn't misunderstand him. He's leaped straight from the cross to the right hand far above all. Well now we'll look at um, oh well, first of all will you notice before we get to chapter 2 be made so much better than the angels. That's a strange thing to say of Christ isn't it? But you see it's because it says in chapter 2 he was made a little lower than the angels. And here again I come back to my crumbs. These folks who are dwelling in the early chapters of the Gospels are listening to one who was made a little lower than the angels. And you and I who are listening to Paul's Ephesian epistle are listening to him after he be made far above all angels, principalities and powers. You're going to tell me that we're wrong or that we're losing something. Don't you see the difference between crumbs from Israel's table that a Gentile could have and these blessings beyond dreams that God holds out now as a gift, unmerited, unsought. Well, let's go on again now to see this question of the position of Christ and the ascension. In uh, chapter 4, chapter 4 it says, verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, that is past, now our version says, into the heavens. Well, good enough. But we want to be very, very careful, don't we, with the inspired word of God. And diachromai, D-I-A, doesn't mean into. Even an English person knows their diaphragm is across, or a diameter is measuring through, or a diagonal. You see, dia means through. And that's what this means. He has passed through the heavens. Or oh, then somebody says, are there several heavens? Oh, I was going to say good heavens, but it's the wrong thing to say, isn't it? Uh, you maybe got to look at the Old Testament of Solomon. Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, he said, why the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee much less this house that I built. And we are told over and over again in the Old Testament that there are heavens above these present limited heavens. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 1, you read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then, there's a limited heaven made called the firmament, which is rather a bad translation because it gives the critic a sneer and say, oh, you think about the solid vault over the heaven. But the word rakia, which you get in the, the margin, tells you it means something expanding. So those poor simple souls who read the Bible and looked at their margin for the last 300 years could anticipate the expanding universe before anyone thought of it. And this simply means something so thin that it can be stretched out, as Isaiah says, stretched out a, out a tent or a tabernacle for God to dwell in. That's what God has done. He's stretched out a tent or a tabernacle. He's confined the conflict of the ages within that sphere. It's not going to rage right through his universe. The devil is called the prince of the power of the air. He once said, like some people are saying today, I will set my throne above the stars. I will be like the Most High. But thank God he's got his limits. He's the prince of the power of the air. And in the book of the Revelation, the last judgment that falls is on the air. And you and I know that cannot mean the mere atmosphere. It's because of what the air stands for. So you see, this Bible anticipates the whole thing because it's written by inspiration of God. 
So we have then, in chapter 1, we've got this emphasis upon the fact that Christ has been given this position, and the way the apostle leaps from the cross right straight to the right hand. You're told in chapter 4 that he passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And then we come to his own summing up in chapter 8. Chapter 8. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. It's very good, isn't it, to get somebody summing up of their own writings. And you know, that was the word that was used to produce, for good or for evil, the ten volumes of the alphabetical analysis. For one old friend of mine who's not here, he can't get here, he said, Charles, he used to speak to me like that, not recognising my greatness and dignity. He said, Charles, he said, why don't you sum up the teaching God has given you? Well, I said, I've heard some of the things I'm supposed to teach and I don't recognise my own children. I think I will. And so when I thought I'd finished, after I'd been given up and I ought to have been dead 11 years ago, I was told if I came to this meeting and spoke after I'd been examined by this doctor, there'd be a coroner's inquest. After that, I've written 10 volumes. The alphabetical analysis, dispensational, doctrinal, prophetical, and practical. So why give up till you have to? Yesterday I thought I shouldn't be here. What happened to me, I don't know. But um, I had a very light breakfast yesterday. One glass of hot water. And that seemed to be the best thing for me. One of those things. But God's able, isn't he? And here I am. Whether you're glad or not, of course, I'm not going to ask you. But I'm glad, because I should have been sad to have been away from it. So now we've got this emphasis that Christ is going to, Paul is going to give you a summing up. Now, the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. What is the sum? Isn't it good? He's going to tell you. Oh, we might pick out many things in Hebrews, but he's going to tell you. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. You're up in heaven again. Because we're told in the next few chapters, he's entered not into the holy places made by hands, but into heaven itself. At the right hand. All the way through Hebrews, he's turning your attention to the heavenly. When you come into chapter 9, as I say, it says, verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. And by the way, writing to Hebrews, Paul wouldn't have to give an explanation of figures of speech. Uh, but to poor Gentiles, it may be necessary to know that holy places doesn't mean plural. It means the most holy place. Like the voice of thy brother's bloods doesn't mean he cut his finger, he lost his life. That's one of the ways in which the Hebrew emphasizes the dignity. So he says here, Christ is not entered into the most holy place made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So that you see, this emphasis upon the ascension and the fact that Christ is seated is an integral part of our teaching and our witness. And without it, we're so much the loser. But we haven't got to the climax yet. Chapter 10. Verse 14. Oh, no, no. Verse 11. And every priest standeth Daily, notice these words. Ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, now has already introduced this same thought in exactly the right place in the structure of Hebrews in chapter 7. He said, the priests, they weren't allowed to be, to, to continue by reason of death. They had to have a successor. But this man... He hath an intransmissible priesthood. It's never passed on to anybody. So once more he says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. You can't get away from it, you see, from this man's witness in Hebrews. He sat down 
forefather by an offering. Oh, henceforth expecting till his enemies did make his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected. Now the word forever here is not the usual one. And I think the only translation that gives some idea of its intensity is to put it this way. For by one offering he hath perfected unto perpetuity. That's where we start, friends. It's not our faith. It's not our hope. It's not our service. This basis that we appear to be leading is underneath the whole thing. For by one offering he hath perfected unto perpetuity them that are sanctified. Now I'll go back to the first verse because they have failed to give it its right place in verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually. Now, strictly speaking, if you offer anything year by year, you offer it continually. And that's not what the Spirit of God said. This is exactly the same word we looked at in verse 14. So let's come again. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, see, Make the comers thereunto perfect unto perpetuity. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. Don't you see? That's the insistence. It leads on to that. That the crucified, buried, ascended, seated Christ is God's witness, God's guarantee, our foundation, and all our hopes are there. What our, not only did, was that to lay a foundation in that sense, but it was to open a new sphere. First of all, we get Abraham, as we were directed this afternoon, having his attention directed not only to the land of promise, but to the better country. And that was a heavenly. Not merely a Jerusalem on earth, which is yet to be a factor in God's scheme, but a heavenly Jerusalem, which is yet to come. Now that Christ has ascended, and is seated at the right hand of God, it could be made known that before the foundation of the world, and most of you know that we're obliged to translate that before the overthrow of the world, because catabolism is opposite to anabolism, which are the two component parts of metabolism. And you say, whatever's that? Well, it's the whole process of living. And I hope you enjoyed your tea. Well, that is anabolism. Well, I didn't have much, but what little I had is all being broken down and used up now, and that's catabolism. That is breaking down. And every reference to catabolism in the Septuagint version, without exception, means to take a battering ram and break a wall down or smash something up. Never means... No. And again, in Genesis 1, if you will study it carefully as you should every word of God, you'll see that the printer has gone out of his way to print the word was in two, cap- two letters. Two different types. Uh, Mr. Canning, you don't go out of your way to print as many different types as you can, do you? No, I'm sure you don't. Well, if you've never looked at it, look at it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth became. Not was. It's the same word, a man became a living soul. It's the same word, and Lot's wife became a pillar of salt. Because even in those days, I suppose he called her sweetie pie or whatever the Hebrew was for it. But she became what she wasn't. So the earth became without form and void and darkness on the face of the deep. And those two words, without form and void, occur only in two other places in the Old Testament. Two prophets tell you that it means vengeance. Jeremiah 4, I saw the heavens, they trembled. The earth was without form and void. Day of the Lord's vengeance. Isaiah 34, speaking about Babylon, vengeance, sword, slaughter. And there it is, the lines of confusion and the stones of emptiness without form and void judgment. Well, the guiding principle for my study for 50 years is this, that when God uses a word, that's the word which the Holy Ghost teaches. And then my response is to compare spiritual with spiritual. So I don't mind what anybody says about that translation. I've got three statements in the scriptures only. And they all say the same thing. It's not creation, it's judgment. When I think of the children who are being instructed in the schools, 
and they're told by their science master, of course, nobody can believe the book of Genesis. You know as much as I do, he says, you've only got to look at the fossils or the cliffs and a piece of coal that goes back more than 6,000 years. What 6,000 years? Well, they're all wrong, friends. That goes back as many million ages as, as you want. But now God breaks in, and the book of uh, the Bible is not a book about science, it's a book about redemption. And the six days ending with one man made in the likeness of the image of God was a foreshadowing of what God was going to do in 6,000 years, not six days, and end up with a thousand years Sabbath. And then comes a new heaven and a new earth. And at long last, God will write those words in blazing colours and wondrous gold. It is finished. It's echoed, you remember, in the book of the Revelation, he who said on the cross, it is finished, sits upon the throne and says, it is done. So we are working on to this high and holy and wonderful thing. Well now, that has to do with us, you see. So will you go back again for a moment to Ephesians 4 that we read just now? And, uh, oh, now I think we better go first of all to chapter 1 as we're started on this emphasis upon this heavenly position where Christ sits. And you will discover that in chapter 1, after he has given the what we term the charter of the church, that is Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 14. Most of you know this, uh, but I may have to say this for some who are not so uh, aware. It's our opportunity. Of course, this is man-made definitions, but I want you to look at the book and test it. The first few verses, verse 3 to verse 6, can be set down as the will of the Father. There isn't a single word in it about forgiveness of sins or justification. It's being chosen in him before the overthrow of the world. All other callings in the, in the New Testament are from or since the foundation of the world. This is the only one. And if a person says, I've never heard you before in my life, I say, friend, don't confess your ignorance. That doesn't prove I'm wrong. This is what God says. Here we start something absolutely new. And that's why I was so moved and I thought, some of these people, they might be enjoying that position if they only knew and allowed themselves to be taught by God's word, being poor Syrophoenicians as they are and outsiders, and they're still thanking God for crumbs from Israel's table. I can't help it, can I? But oh, what a pity. So here we have the, the ending up with the words to the praise of his glory. Then we have in whom we have redemption through his blood, and this ends up with to the praise of his glory, and that is the work of the Son. So we have the will of the Father, we have the work of the Son, and then we have the seal of the earnest, or the witness of the Spirit. Now after that, the Apostle not only gives us a teaching, but he prays that our eyes may be opened, that God may give us a spirit of wisdom to appreciate this, because if not, you may talk about these things till you're black in the face. This is an election. The word predestination comes twice in this early chapter. We're not dealing with what you might call the initial salvation from sin, which has to do with anybody. We have a particular calling in view that was planned before even Adam sinned. Staggering thought to think it might reach to us, but we can't alter the word of God. And so he goes on praying for them, and at the end he says, verse 19, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us all who believe? according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So he's on the same thing. And we go back earlier, and if I'd have read that early part of Ephesians 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings, where? In heavenly places. So these people who want me to conform to the Sermon on the Mount, they say, the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, I say, I've got a position in heavenly places. Oh, it means the same thing, brother. Well, I say, it means the same thing, and it means where Christ sits at the right hand of God is not in the earth just now in that capacity. So we dare not twist the word of God to keep in harmony with someone who disagrees or to hold to the traditions that we've been brought up to. So he says, and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above, now notice this, no angels are ever mentioned. 
In Paul's prison ministry, they're out of it. The only reference is once in Colossians, when he says, don't adopt the attitude of worship of angels. Israel, all Israel, were all their lives, from the call of Abraham, right through the Gospels, right through the Acts of the Apostles, under the ministry of angels. And there's more angels mentioned in the first chapter of Hebrews than anywhere else in Paul's writings, you see? Angels are Hebrews. Oh, I know as a, a youngster, I used to dance about with four angels around me, bed sort of business, but <coughs> nothing to do with me. Angels are the ministers and servants of heaven. Principalities and powers are the aristocracy of heaven. Well, I'm not worthy to be associated with an angel, friend. So I might as well be associated with the aristocracy if God's grace goes to that, but I'm not fit for either. But he assures me in Colossians that he's made me fit to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So I'm not going back on that for anybody of you. These are the things that belong to our calling that we want to put over against crumbs that fall from Israel's table. They never were there, you see. But I haven't finished about this glorious position of our Saviour, have I? Far above all, principality, power, might, dominion, and every name that is named, the Apostle almost gasps, as he does in Romans 8. He said, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor principality, nor things present, nor things to come, if there be any other creature. He brings any other creature in. So here he says, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and have put all things under his feet, here we are changing from Genesis 1 and 2 to the reality. For when the psalmist described the dominion that was put under the feet of Adam in Psalm 8, he was made a little lower than the angels, and he was given dominion over the beast and the cattle and so on. And when Paul writes the mystery of Christ, he says, <laughs> he says, you search anybody's writings and see if they know the mystery of Christ as I've just told you in a few words. And you say, where is that, Paul? Oh, he says, I'm sorry, it's a lost epistle that nobody can find. Do you believe God writes a word like that? He says, I've just told you in this very epistle that I've written to you. He has put all things under his feet, and there's not a single word about oxen, or cattle, or fish, or fowl, and have gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Oh, he is one who was made for our sakes a little lower than the angels, who is now so far above that they're not even mentioned. And now the marvel is, that you, who once were dead in trespasses and sins, hath he quickened, and not only so, but raised together with him, and made to sit together with him in heavenly places. Of course, potentially. Even the chapel of the open book is not an equivalent for heaven. We say in every place is hallowed ground, and so it is where we meet. But this is intended that we should take it for granted as true that we are not left until we are seated together with him where he sits at the right hand of God. If that weren't written in scripture, it would be almost blasphemy to say it. And I've been accused of blasphemy because I quote what God says. Well, that doesn't make any difference to you or to me. But it shows you how vast this thing is unless you've got the eye to see it. So he says, you've been raised and seated together in heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. And he is a very homely word that always moves me at the end. Not magnificence, not even the word glory, but the word kindness. Because however much we boast of our acceptance in the beloved, however much we know that nobody can ever raise a word of condemnation, no separation possible, we still wonder how we're going to get on there, you know, when we get surrounded by principalities and powers and all the magnificence of heavenly glory. But he says you'll be met with kindness. Kindness. And you'll be taken by the hand and lent gently on. So, it's all is well. So we've got these heavenly places stressed. And in chapter 4, to miss some of them, we come to the practical section of this epistle to the Ephesians. And you will notice that he changes the very title of Christ. In chapter 3, he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, Lord. 
And there's millions of Christians who never heard it, friends. Never heard it. They don't know what you mean when you speak of the prison ministry of the Apostle Paul. They don't know that when he became a prisoner, he received an absolutely brand new revelation that was never made known before, consequent upon Israel's dismissal and present blindness. But he calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ. But when it comes to the practical side, he repeats it this way, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. And that's not merely changing a word for the sake of changing it. When the word Lord is emphasised, particularly by itself, it is now service that's in view. Your relation to him as master. Your relation to him as head of the body is one thing. But members of the body are supposed to serve. So now in the practical side, they're all related to him as head of the body and he is the prisoner of the Lord. And you may say to me, well, I don't see where heavenly places and all that's going to have anything to do with practice. No. Well, I hope you won't think that the Lord has slipped up because he's here. He says, verse 8, Wherefore he said, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And I've heard that explained, that he took all those who were dead from the tomb and took them up to heaven. But friends, the word to lead captivity captive means to lead at the point of a spear. And the very word is used in Timothy when he speaks about leading captive certain kinds, led away by their sins. The very terms are used in the book of Judges to lead captive by a spear. And this is only saying from another point of view that he spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly triumphing over them. For there are some principalities and powers that are enemies. As you know, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, with the heavenly, the, the ministries of darkness in heavenly places, just the same as Israel had their opponents in connection with their own inheritance. So here we are again then, once more with this heavenly places aspect. And in that connection, we read that the ascended Christ, verse 11, gave some apostles. Who were those apostles? Oh, you say, Peter, James, John. Could you rattle off the names of the apostles in Matthew 10? Well, I can't. I know Peter, James, and John there, and I think Bartholomew's there. But you see, those apostles were never appointed by the ascended Christ. They were appointed by the Christ who was walking this earth a little lower than the angels in all his humility. Now, the ascended Christ, the victor, he appoints apostles in the plural. So even though you want to put the Apostle Paul among the twelve, which he doesn't accept, you've still got some more. And what are they to do? Now, our brother this afternoon told you that it was a perfect in ministry. Verse 12. <clears throat> you want to watch out for this word perfect, because it comes in verse 13, unto a perfect man, but it's not the same word. Just watch that. The perfect man is the word, a man at the end. It's our word, telly, in the word, Telescope, telegram, <coughs> telephone and television. You know why? Because all those things have to do with distance. Telegram, you write at a distance and telescope, you see at a distance and so on. It means a person who's reached the goal at the end. And that's the very word used by Christ on the cross. I don't like to say it. Tele. Finished. Touch the tape at the end. The work he came to do. The very word that Paul used in 2 Timothy 4, I finished my course, touched the tape at the end. But the other word in verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, can be understood when you go back to the Gospels and our Saviour, passing some fishermen, he called them, he said, I'll make you fishers of men. And the next time he said, he saw men mending their nets. These were fishes. These were mending their nets. That word mending is this word perfecting. You see, if we were all fishers and nobody mended nets, you wouldn't get anything. We may magnify the preacher of the gospel and forget that if he wasn't taught the doctrine, he wouldn't have any gospel to preach. So the Lord didn't put them out of balance. Fishers and menders. Now the Lord has said to you and to me if we belong to this calling, never mind about what people say to you, that you ought to be spending your life organising gospel campaigns. Say, let the Lord tell me what to do, if you don't mind. And he said to this peculiar calling, he said, now, your ministry, these apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, 
is for the readjusting of the saints. The word occurs in Galatians 6 when it says, restore such an one. And if you knew the medical terms that were in use in the days of the apostle, it meant to set a fractured limb. A fractured cut. Right through the Acts of the Apostles, the people of Israel were there. And the last chapter, we have Paul bitten by a serpent, doesn't make any harm to him, and healing all manner of disease. Right through to the end. And he says, for the hope of Israel, I'm held with this chain. Right through to the end. Then he quotes Isaiah 6, their eyes are shut, and he says, the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles. And Israel, for nearly 2,000 years, have been out in their present blindness. Well, now, was God, God taken unawares by that? No, he knows the end from the beginning. He never revealed what he would do if Israel failed. But he got his purpose, and he got his plan, and when Israel failed, he said to this man, now you can make it known. And Paul says, unto me, who am the less, less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should make known what is the fellowship, or better still, the revised text, what is the dispensation of the mystery which God, who created all things, hath hid? And somebody says, oh no, I can see all this mystery in the Old Testament types. Well, that's a denial of what God says. He says it never was in them. So this is a peculiar calling. And Second Timothy and Titus says, and you're a peculiar people. And if some people call you that in the wrong sense, don't you worry. Because you've got the right end of it all the time. You can afford to be generous. So he says, your work is to knit together the saints. Your work is to build up the body of Christ. Of course you can be accused of being a little garden walled around, sacred and peculiar ground, and narrow-minded and what not. Say, never mind. As long, long as I please him, I think that matters most. I always remember at one railway station, you've got to notice up all tickets, including season tickets, to be shown. And of course there was a speed crush. And the, it was a, a special audience. And this porter says, Oh, no, I'm not very, uh, you know, acceptable to you tonight, he says, but all I've got to do is to please the man up there. And he pointed up to the station master's office. Well, that's where I am, friends. You see? And that's where you ought to be, friends. When you try to please everybody, you please nobody. And if you can only please the Lord a little, oh, what a blessed person you will be. But of course, it's unto all pleasing is the goal before us. Till we all come, see, after building up the saints, till we all arrive unto, not merely in, the unity of the faith. So we have the unity of the spirit which we have to keep, and we have the unity of the faith that we have to reach. And that includes the knowledge, or better still, the acknowledgement of the Son of God. And it will reach out to the perfect man. Now, Paul has gone out of his way to use the word which means a husband. And it's so translated in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. He could have used the wide word for man if he meant it in this chapter because he knew both words. So, if he said the goal is a perfect husband, can you believe that this church is the bride of the Lamb? If you can believe that, you can believe anything. This is a distinct company. The bride of the Lamb is one company of God's people. And the perfect husband being prepared now is another. And when the day of glory comes, it won't be all bride and no bridegroom. And it won't be all bridegroom and no bride. It'll be just what God intended in those first chapters of Genesis, coming true in a sense that nobody's going to believe and have written. And you know, paradise is to be restored, as you find at the end of the Revelation. The tree of life acceptable. And then going on beyond that time, we come to 1 Corinthians 15, when you want the finished work of Christ finally. When it says, then cometh the end. Then cometh the end. When you should have put down all rule and all authority. Not merely good, not merely bad, but good. The millennium. A thousand years is going to be ruled by delegated authority. David sitting on his throne, the twelve apostles sitting upon twelve thrones, the heavenly Jerusalem and the overcomers ruling, and it ends up with a great rebellion, the moment Satan's let loose. So the world will be given its last opportunity with no devil to tempt it. You know how easy it is? Well, of course, when they're youngsters, when you're found stealing an apple, you say, Oh, Satan tempted me. In your blue eyes look up, you know, and you get off. 
I've tried it myself so I know it works. But when you come to these sacred and serious things, God says, I know what you're going to say. If only you hadn't got an outside tempter, you would have, you would have, all right. You'll have a thousand years when there'll be all that possibility of pleasing me. And as sure as truth is truth, the moment the devil's out of his bottomless pit, oh, by the way, I must tell you this, in case I forget it, that when I was dealing with Genesis 1 verse 2, I ought to have told you that the very word which is translated the deep in that verse is the bottomless pit that comes in Revelation. The whole Bible begins and ends with a bottomless pit and a serpent and a paradise. You see, it's a complete story are all filled in, but we haven't got time tonight to begin at Genesis and go through to Revelation, although we are hoping to have time on the Wednesday meetings where we are somewhere in the first two or three chapters of Genesis and we've got all the Bible in front of us for those folks who spend their dinner time coming here on Wednesday. Uh, so we come back again here to this passage and we realise that we've got something here which is intensely practical. We've got something to do. I know we don't, we don't earn our salvation. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But we are God's workmanship unto good works. Not out of good works, oh no, but the moment he saves us. We're supposed to be fruitful, we're supposed to be serving. And so he says here, verse 16, From whom the whole body, this is Christ the head, fitly joined together. Now brother, fitly joined together two passages when he quoted uh, Ephesians 2, when it says the temple fitly framed together, and now it says the body fitly joined together, they're exactly the same words in the original. The temple in the doctrine, the body in the practice. And the one essential thing to make them function is to be fitly joined together. You couldn't build a temple with stone and hope it's going to stand if it wasn't fitly framed together. And you couldn't have a body functioning if there's dislocation of the parts and separation of this, that and the other. So what a need there is for those who believe the truth to stand together, to hold not merely one another, hold fast the head from whom the joints and bands being knit together make it increase with the increase of God. That's more, more that's what we get again here in Ephesians 4. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies the joint is not the originator of the supply. It's a channel. Uh, you, you don't want to be likened to a tube, do you? Or a pipe. But that's more or less what we are. All we need is in Christ the head. But it can be channeled through you or channeled through me. Or it can be stopped, so far as our part of it is concerned, by lack of faithfulness. So it says the joint of the supply, according to the effectual working in the measure of not merely every part, in the measure of each one part. Each one part. Now I do believe that the medical profession tell you that if one part of your body fails, some other organ takes on a part of the work and works a bit of overtime and you manage to scrape along as best you can. But that's not really living. I wonder whether everyone here who says, well I believe this truth. I believe it so. I wonder whether you know where you fit in the scheme of things. Each one part. You see, we, we remembered, in thinking about those who do the printing and the tape recording, we remember those who cut the sandwiches and supply the tea. Well, I know that's not on the same plane, but uh, we wouldn't get very far if it was never done, would we? And so each one part, having its share, maketh increase of the body unto the building up of itself in love. God's telling us, you let me look after the salvation of the great outside world, and if you belong to this, don't waste your energies, but concentrate upon the thing I'm telling you to do. Don't you see, you might have complained to the Lord and said to him, when he, re when he said to the poor woman in the presence, I am not sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, you said, oh Lord, surely you've got, he said, don't you see, that if only Israel were brought to repentance, salvation is going to spread through them to the ends of the earth. That's why they were chosen. In thee and in thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. 
He says, I'm not forgetting the outside Gentiles. I'm working along the plan that God has given, and if all Israel were saved, as they will yet be, then we'll have light and truth spread over the earth from a center as never before. But they failed. And when they failed, terms changed. And you're uh, defined in Ephesians 2 in the same words that the Syrophoenician would be defined, so I'm going to read it, chapter 2. Verse 12, at that time, ye were without Christ. You see, she came to him and said, Thou son of David. He answered another word. Later on, when Paul wrote his second Timothy, he said, Now, remember this, Timothy, that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. What do you mean? Oh, he said, listen to Peter. He said, he was raised from the dead to sit upon the throne of his father, David. He says, he's been raised from the dead to sit upon a throne that David never knew. We're not losing anything, friends, you see. So it's wise to keep these titles in their right place. And so he says that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens. And the word commonwealth is actually the word citizenship. Being aliens from the commonwealth or citizenship of Israel. That's what we were by nature, aliens. Israel were the ones close to God and we were the far off ones. And strangers from the covenants of promise. Can you tell me any covenant that God has made with a Gentile? Oh yes, you go back to the days of Noah and you read about uh, certain types of food and whosoever sheddeth man's blood shall man but his blood be shed. But you'll find no covenants of blessing. The covenants belong to Israel. Old covenant or new covenant belongs to Israel. They are the ones to whom it was made and you must be joined together with Israel to have any connection with them. You as an outside Gentile, or I'll say myself because it sounds rude, doesn't it? I, as an outside Gentile, have never had any covenants made with me. And he goes on to say, um, having no hope, well, if I've got no Christ and got no promises and got no covenants and I'm an alien and a stranger, well, I am hopeless and without God without God. And then to make it worse, I'm in the world. And then comes those blessed little words that say, but now. Just earlier it says, but God. Oh, what a difference he can make with that word, can't he? But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes are far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. Who was broken, who was made. Now, when you read this, slip the article the four times. He hath made the both. Some both that's in view. What both? The Jew and the Gentile. They were at loggerheads in the Acts of the Apostles. They wouldn't sit down at the same table. And when Peter ventured it, he had to give an account to himself to the church. You've been among Gentiles and you've eaten with them. That's Peter. I don't know what, we, we started doing it, but we didn't say you were Jews up here and there were Gentiles down there when we separated up this afternoon. That was only a convenience. But you'd have to have done that in the early church, friends. They would not sit together. Now, all that's gone. The middle wall of partition that kept a Gentile out is gone. He is our peace, who hath made the both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now, what does he mean by that? That word ordinance is the word translated decrees in Acts 15 when they met together and they finally said, well, these are the decrees that we now send out to the church that the Gentiles should observe this, this, this and that. But we will observe all that Moses has said. That's the church. Divided people. You never could have the unity of the Spirit by people who had four things for you to observe and about 40 things for the others. Couldn't be. So that was abolished. The enmity was gone. And not meaning to make it himself, for that word is not good enough, it's the word create. For to create it himself of the twain, one new man. So making peace. And he might reconcile the both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we, the both, had access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God. 
And so you see, we lose nothing. We gain the more. I once more say to you, as I said in this, I think I'll say it again to be a finishing word. After we've turned to these scriptures, I'll read this again. Some of us stay at the cross. And some of us wait at the tomb. Quickened, raised, seated, together with Christ, yet lingering still in its gloom. Some of us bide at the Passover feast, with ascension all unknown. The triumphs of grace in the heavenly place that our Lord has made our own. If the Christ who died had stopped at the cross, his work had been incomplete. If the Christ who was buried had stayed in the tomb, he had only known defeat. But the way of the cross never stops at the cross. And the way of the tomb leads on to victorious grace in the heavenly place where the risen Lord has gone.